Pray with me before we begin. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day. I thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us, what it shows us, how it continually corrects us. It brings us back to a focus of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray this morning that as we open your word that that would be the case. Uh, We just confess, as we always do, as we open your word, that we can't do this, see this, understand this on our own power. And so we ask that your spirit would lead and guide us, that you would teach us all things, that you would glorify your son as we open your word, and that we would see him more clearly in what you've done for us. Uh, I thank you for this time. We thank you for preserving and keeping your word for us, that we can now open it and see you more clearly in it. We pray that you'd bless this time, that you'd be honored and glorified in it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, was thinking this, this week back, uh, big stories throughout the year, that always happens as you get close to the end of the year, and I was thinking of, I remember watching a video earlier in the year of uh, the Mars rover that we sent to Mars, the Explorer thing that went, and there was this really cool video, if you haven't seen this, that NASA did, and what it was is it showed how they got it there, and the, uh, the calculations that went into that, and what that looked like, and how they shot this thing into space. And there were all these calculations that had to be at the right angle and the right trajectory and all the things that go with it. And then it would float and get in space and it'd float for a long way. And then when it got to Mars, it would, rockets would come on and it'd land and all these things. But what stuck out in that story to me as I, as I read that and saw that was they talked about how if the calculations were off by like one one thousandth of a degree, they would miss Mars by thousands of miles. And so it had to be so precise and so perfect. And so they did it and it actually worked. And it worked exactly like they thought, and they got it just on. And so it's a pretty amazing accomplishment when you start to think about it. But what I thought about with that story is I saw that, and I kept coming back to that, was, was thinking about how the bigger the uh, project is, the bigger the truth is, the bigger anything is, that uh, if you're off just by a little, how huge the consequences are. If you get off just a little bit. And so this morning, as we go back into this series, we've done this for a couple weeks now, uh, we've been talking about this idea of the incarnation, the idea that Jesus came to earth, and as Jesus came to earth, he is fully God, and he is fully human, and he holds those things perfectly together, divinity and humanity. And each week we looked at different aspects of that. Like, for example, last week we talked about Jesus being humble, obedient servant, and what that means, and the humility of coming to us. Or the week before that, we talked about how we can call Jesus our brother by what he did for us. And we saw that in Hebrews 2. And so when we miss parts of this so important doctrine, we can miss hugely on what Christianity teaches and who God is and the way he relates to us and all that goes with that. And kind of in that series, as we go into that today, we're going to look at this idea of God with us, the incarnation, God come to us, our king, right? We did humble servant, our brother, today we're doing our king. We're going to look at a very familiar story that Chris just read to us from Matthew chapter 2. And as we do, the the idea I want you to see, thinking about if we miss it, how far off it can be and how bad it can be, and the idea of Jesus as king. If we miss the idea of what the Bible actually teaches as Jesus being king, it can be disastrous, the effects of that. And I think we see that in our passage this morning. And so that's what I want us to do and look at with that idea of Jesus as king. In your bulletin, as I often say, normally, most of the time, I have three questions and we answer those three questions. Today, we're going to do it a little different. It's not three questions. I'm going way out on a limb here. There's not two, three questions. There's actually two, two observations I want us to see. And the first one is that if we misunderstand who Jesus is as king, if we misunderstand that, a couple things happen. One, it's radically threatening 
And two, there's horrific results that come because of that. So if we miss Jesus, if we misunderstand, even if we miss it by a little bit, we go way off course. And so it's radically threatening and there's horrific results. But if we see Jesus rightly as he is, if we see him as the king that he is, what what I want us to see is that, yes, there can still be difficulty in life, but yet there's a comfort that goes with it, a peace that goes with it. So difficult yet comforting or difficult but a, a deep abiding peace. And then lastly, as we see who he is, as he is, the last thing, it's ultimately wonderful. And so that's kind of the comparison I want us to do. And I think we see this in Matthew chapter 2, in this passage. And so we're going to start with this idea of the misunderstanding Jesus as king first. And so we're going to start there. When we misunderstand him, what happens? And the first thing I want you to think about just in this story is the characters that are here. You know, sometimes we get into these uh, Christmas stories, ones that we've heard since childhood or you've heard a bunch of times Matthew chapter 2 would fall in that the wise men coming and you see this picture and and we kind of go back into it and sometimes we can miss really obvious straightforward things because it's so familiar and so I want you just to think about who's in this story you know we have this Herod who is a Roman ruler we see him he plays a pretty big part in this and then you have the the wise men that come from the far east and they come and to bring gifts, and they're looking for the Messiah. You have the religious leaders that are helping them find. And then right in the center of all that is Jesus with Mary and Joseph. And so you've kind of got these four groups represented there, and we're going to kind of look at each one and how they're seeing this idea of Jesus the King differently and what happens as a result of that. And so as we consider those characters, I want us to zoom in and just think about Herod for just a moment as we begin how we miss Jesus as king, and how that can then become radically threatening when we do. And so think about what happens with Herod here. Herod is a Roman ruler. He's actually, ironically enough, known at the time as the king of the Jews because he's ruling over Jerusalem. He's in charge, and he's uh, kind of over all this area. And so you can start to think about this picture of it being radically threatening when you look at these first few verses. Look at starting in verse 2. And so they come from the east, the wise men come, and they come from a long journey, and they get there, and they say, where is, it, is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and came to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem. And so they quote to him Micah that we just read a few minutes ago, Micah chapter 5, and they say that this Messiah is coming and he's going to come from Bethlehem. And so I want you just to think of the picture that's there. Now there's a big misunderstanding going on, and we see this all throughout the New Testament. It's not unique to Herod. It's, It's not even just Herod. It's actually the religious rulers. It's pretty much everybody in terms of who the Messiah will be. Right? So they come and they show up. And I want you just to think about if Herod's called king of the Jews and he's ruling over this area and these guys show up from the east and they say, hey, we came to find the king of the Jews. And, and we're not talking about you, Herod. <laughs> we're looking for the king of the Jews. You can start to see how that would be threatening. But you need to understand who they thought the Messiah would be and what their understanding was to see the fullness of that. And, and what that is and in that picture is, is what they thought is they had looked at all the Old Testament prophecies about who the Messiah would be and they knew it would come from Bethlehem And they knew all these things in Nazareth and all the pictures that are there and all the things that we talk about and we see in the Old Testament pointing ahead to who Jesus would be. But their understanding was that when the Messiah came, everything that the Old Testament says about Jesus would happen at once. They didn't have in their mind the idea that Jesus is going to come and he's going to be the humble, obedient servant that we talked about last week. 
to lay down his life as a sacrifice for our sins and die and be resurrected. They had no clue. They thought Jesus would come and he would be the ruler and he would overthrow governments and he would establish his reign and he'd be on his throne forever. They didn't have the the part of Jesus' death and resurrection. That wasn't in their mind. And so when Herod hears and he starts to ask, well, who is this Messiah? And he's asking the religious leader and what's going on. That's what he would have heard. It's going to be a guy that God sends and he's going to come and he's going to overthrow governments and he's going to rule forever. Now here's Herod, the king, ruling. You can start to see just from a historical aspect how Jesus would be radically threatening to Herod. Right? He's even got people coming from other nations and coming around and going, where is the king of the Jews? Where is he? And so Herod, you can start to see how that would kind of play on him. Right? You can imagine if you work in a job, and let's say uh, I used to work in an architecture firm. And let's just say for sake of argument, I was head of design. I was never head of design. I was intern architect. But let's just say I was head of design. And all of a sudden, my, my uh, architecture firm says, hey, we just hired a new head of design. How would that make you, you go, wait, wait a second. I thought I was head of design. That's kind of what's happening here with Herod. Right? Where's the king of the Jews? And he's going, wait a second, I'm known as king of the Jews. And so as he starts to hear what's really going on, you can see how that's radically, radically threatening for a king. Right? Because he sees Jesus as a, a, a political figure that's going to raise up and really pose a threat to him. And so you start to think about that. So you can say, well, well that's great. And I can see how that would be the case. I can see how historically that would be the case for Herod or if I was a king, but what does that have to do with us? Right? And, and I just say this. You can say, well, I'm, I'm not a king. I'm not vying to rule over people. I'm not doing any of those things. And I would just submit to you that all of us, all of us in our sinful self is trying to be a king. And we're trying to be a king of our own life. And so when Jesus comes and what we start to see in Scripture, even though we can see how in a very real way it was threatening to Herod, in a very real way, it's threatening to us when we start to see the claims of who Jesus is. Right? If Jesus comes and he starts to talk about being God in the flesh, that what he says is truth, uh, that he is the absolute measure of all things, that's radically threatening to us. Because if that is true, then that means we have to bend to him as king, and that can be radically threatening. And the reason it's radically threatening, I want you to think about this for just a second. In our culture today, it's very hard for us to understand that and and to think about that. And and the reason is, in in our culture today, one of the most uh, highest held uh, pursuits is that I'm master of my own fate. I decide what I want. No one can tell me what to do. I pursue happiness the way I want to. And that's the way it is. And so when you see Jesus coming and saying, no, this is reality... And this is what it looks like. That's very threatening to us. And it's threatening to us because we're misunderstanding who Jesus is as king. And I want you just to think about that for just a second. Jesus isn't radically threatening to us if we truly understand who he is. But if we don't, it's very threatening. Because we can look at it, and I hear this all the time, uh, Christianity and there's all these rules and it's all about doing this and not doing that. And I, can't, I don't want those things on me. And and the picture, though, is that if Jesus sees things as they truly are, if he really is who he says he is, then the way he speaks about things is the way they are. He is the creator God of the universe that upholds the universe by his power of his word. We talked about that last week. And so the way Jesus sees things is the way they are. But we misunderstand. And we start to think of Jesus kind of as an earthly king. 
We put them in human terms because we can't fully understand and fathom the divinity. And so what happens is we think of what it would look like if somebody was telling me what to do and what it is and I have to give up and defer to them. Now Jesus knows all things perfectly and it's not a bad thing, it's actually a good thing because he knows how you were made. But it's radically threatening because we misunderstand who he is. So there's a lot of ways that happens. Right? We can start to see him as being rules and this is what he's talking about and this is what we have to do and we misunderstand what he really came to do. Right? Just as Herod was misunderstanding, thinking he's an earthly king, oftentimes we misunderstand Jesus and it threatens us because we see him as just giving us rules and things we have to follow and we try to do this the best we can so that we can earn our worth before God. And that's really hard. Because as you see that, if you read, uh, just I always use this as the example, read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and then try to do it. If Jesus just came to tell you what to do and give you some rules to live by and then you have to live it out, you're in trouble. Just read those three chapters and try to put it into effect just for a day. And you'll see real quickly how radically threatening that is. But that's because we're missing when that happens, and people say that all the time, they're missing what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to give you rules to live by so that you can earn your worth to God. He came to do what you can't do for you and give it to you by grace. That changes it completely. And when we miss that, it's radically threatening. But I want to submit to you too, if you're on this journey and you're kind of thinking through these questions and you're asking these questions, part of when you start to see that you're saved by grace... I say this every week. I feel like I always have to say this, but we're going to say it anyway. We are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. That what Jesus has come and done for us is how we're saved. He's given it to us by grace. We put our faith in Him. That's how you're saved. That's how you're good with God. He gives you His righteousness. And so we say that every week, and we can start to wrestle with what that means. But even the idea of being saved by grace can start to become radically threatening if we misunderstand Jesus' kingship. I want you to think about that for just a second. I remember reading in a book, uh, it's called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City and has been one for 30 years. And all throughout this book, he retells conversations he's had with people over the years. And he tells of having a conversation with a lady that comes to him and she says, okay, I'm starting to get this idea that you're saved by grace. And she says, that's great. I'm, I'm starting to get this. It's not what I do. It's what God does for me. But she said, I still have a problem. It's still threatening me in a certain way. And I'm paraphrasing now. But she says this. She says, if that's true, that's threatening to me because then God can ask anything he wants of me. Think about that for just a second. If you're saved completely by grace, it's all his doing, then there's no part of your life that's your own because it's all a gift by him. And so suddenly he can ask, and she said, that's scary to me. Now he goes on to tell the story. This lady kind of worked through this and later became a believer and put her faith in Christ. But that's something she had to wrestle with. And the reason I think that comes, what's behind that is we think, well, what would Jesus ask of us? What could he ask? He could ask anything. And, and the misunderstanding of Jesus' kingship that leads to that being threatening is that we would think he might ask things of us that aren't good for us. Or he might demand something of us that would take our joy away. Or he would demand something of us that would, we wouldn't like. Or we wouldn't, have, uh, wouldn't bring us the fullest of joy. But God always has your best interests at heart and he knows what you need above all else. And so we put what we would think we might do in that situation on what he would do 
And that's not the case. And so there's so many ways that we misunderstand it. And when we misunderstand that, it can lead to all sorts of problems. And that's the second thing I want you to think about. If we misunderstand Jesus' kingship, it can be horrifying in the results. You see that right here in a very real way. Right? The, 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 the uh, magi, the men from the east have come. They're seeking Jesus. They ask where he is. Herod says, go find him and then come back and tell me. And so they go and they find Jesus and you know the story. They get there and they worship him and they see him. And then God comes to them and if you look in verse 12, it says it warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. And so Herod is radically threatened by Jesus. God tells them, be careful, go this way. And then look at what he says in verse 13. And when they had departed, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Take the child and mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Right? Herod is so threatened by who he thinks Jesus is, he's seeking to kill him now. I'm going to wipe him out. Right? Because he thinks he's going to take over his power. It's the same thing that they would do 33 years later when they seek to kill Jesus and put him on the cross because he radically threatened the religious leaders because they were still misunderstanding who Jesus is. And so they seek to kill him. And so God provides for them and they go off to Egypt. But then look at what he does. Verse 16. The horrifying results of misunderstanding who Jesus is. And then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise man, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region that were two years old or under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. And so you see him go off and begin to kill thousands of children, all because he's misunderstanding who Jesus is. And you say, that's horrible. That is horrific to even imagine, to think of child after child being killed because he's trying to do away with Jesus. And so you can say that and go, oh, that, that is absolutely, I don't know anyone who would say that's not awful, that that's not a horrific thing. But then we can quickly kind of put it in our own terms and go, but I, I've never done anything like that. I may have misunderstood who Jesus is, but I've never gone off and tried to take a life because of that, or I haven't done this or that, or those kind of things. But I want you to think about the picture, though, that, that is in our own lives when we misunderstand Jesus' kingship. It may not be horrific in the way that Herod was horrific, but oftentimes when we misunderstand who Jesus is, we rebel in all different ways, and there are horrific results. I'll give you one example, just real briefly, and then we'll move on. Scripture tells us that we're to rest, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath. You're supposed to actually rest. It says don't work every day all the time. You need to stop and have a day of rest. And that's very hard in our culture for us to take on, to, to be able to actually do that, kind of push that off to the side. That's not really that important. For the last couple of years, God's been reminding me over and over, you can rest for a day and things won't fall apart without you. It's a pride thing for me. Like things will fall apart if I'm not busy doing something. And it's like God's saying, it'll be okay. I've got this if you stop for a day, right? But that's hard for us. And what happens a lot of times is we rebel against our King Jesus. You need to rest. And we go, no, I really, I got too much to do. And so what happens we continue to work and we work and we work harder and longer and more and more and it starts to unravel our relationships. It puts a strain on marriages and, and time together and all these other things because we don't trust them. And so it ends up having, in, in, in a different way, horrific results in our day-to-day -day life because we don't just listen to our king. 
oh, I've got this. I need to keep working. I need to keep doing it. Now, that's one example among many. But God knows how we're made. He knows what we need. He knows what's best. And oftentimes we rebel against what he tells us and go on our own. And that's one simple example of how that can be. And so uh, just the first point here. If we misunderstand who Jesus is, we misunderstand his kingship, it can be very threatening to us. And then it can lead to all kinds of problems in our life. It can lead to horrific results like we see with Herod. But I want us to think for just a second, if we see him rightly, if we see him as the king that he is, what comes out of that? And I want to tell you that there will still be difficult times in your life even if you see Jesus as the king that he is. But there is a deep abiding peace and a comfort that comes despite circumstances if you see him as he is. And so I want you just to think about this story, a very familiar story and the different people that are here. You've got the two groups that I talked about before. There's really four groups, but two and two, two sets. You've got Herod and kind of his court, and then you've got the religious leaders. And it struck me this week as I read this story, this very familiar story over and over, that Herod says, go find Jesus and then come tell me. And then you've got the religious leaders that say, oh, well, this is where you'll find them. You'll find them in Bethlehem, and this is what we know, and they talk about it. But neither Herod nor the religious leaders go anywhere. Oh, he's probably over there in Bethlehem. Good luck with that. But they never actually go see Jesus. right? They never, they never go. But then you have two other groups here. You have the, the Magi, the wise men that go and find them. And then you have Mary and Joseph who are there with them. And you see them seeing Jesus very differently than the ones that don't go. And so that's what I want us to think about. And so take the wise men first. right? Blow up the, the uh, nativity scenes that we always think of. The, this is probably a year to two years after Jesus is born that they show up. The wise men weren't there on Christmas night morning. Our nativity scenes are wrong. Okay, that's okay if you've got one of those. You don't have to throw it away. But they weren't there on the night that he was born. It would have taken them a while to get there. They had been studying the stars for a long time and they saw this star come up and so they knew something was different and it drove them to come to Jerusalem to find them. Now that would have been a 30 to 40 to 50 day journey for them to get there. And so we're not talking about they hopped in the car and drove over and got there that day. It took them a long time to get there and it was a long course. And I want you even just to think about their journey. 30 to 40 days traveling to get there. They get there and they go to Herod's court and they ask questions about where is he supposed to be born? They get the religious leaders. They search the scriptures. They hear from Micah that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They're asking all these questions. And I don't want to over-spiritualize the wise men, but I want you to think about the picture that emerges there. Their journey to find Jesus is that of a lot of people's journey. It takes a long time. And there's a lot of questions that are asked, and there's a lot of things you're uncertain about. And you have to search the scriptures and you go to people that maybe would know more than you do and you ask your questions and it takes a while. That's the the story of a lot of us, that it takes a while to get to that point, asking questions. It's like the lady uh, that Tim Keller tells about in his book. If I'm saved by grace alone, then there's nothing that God can't ask of me. That's a very legitimate question to ask as you're seeking answers on what Christianity is. That's a pretty big question. It's an important one. Or there's lots of questions that maybe in your journey as you're asking the questions, and maybe that's where you are today. You don't have, you're not sure about Jesus. You're not sure about this idea of the incarnation, God, man being perfectly together, and you're asking those questions. A lot of times our questions flow out of very deep, personal things. Well, I knew some Christians a long time ago, and they were really ugly to me. 
It's a very real question. A lot of times it's not an intellectual question. It's from your own experience. I'm not sure how this works. Or this really horrible thing happened in my life and I don't understand how there can be a good and loving God and allow that to happen. And we ask all those kind of questions and we need to ask those questions. And I just want to say this, if you're here today and you have those questions, that's where you are. You're asking those questions in your mind. I want you to please, please, please hear me. We want to know them. We want to answer those questions with you. We want to spend the time thinking about them. We want you to be able to come and ask, I don't know about this passage, this doesn't make sense to me. I'm not sure that the Bible is God's Word, or whatever your question may be. The truth is, if you look around the room, whatever question you've got, somebody else here has been wrestling with the same thing at some point. And so it's a wonderful opportunity as a, as a family of faith to walk through those questions together. And oftentimes it takes a while. And there are a lot of questions, and God works in all different ways. And so I just want you to know you can ask any question, no matter how dumb you might think it is. There's no dumb questions. We want to take time and walk through those together. But the picture I want you to see here with the, with the wise men coming is that they had a long, difficult process to find Jesus. It took them a while, right? And even once they find him, everything doesn't come together just perfectly. They come and they see him, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But quickly after that, they've got to go the other way to get away from Herod, right? There's difficulties swirling now that they found Jesus. You say the same thing with Mary and Joseph. Look at verses 13 again. Go back to 13. And so they've come and they found Jesus and the Magi were there. And then it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And they rose and they took the child to Egypt. And so there's a very clear picture there of just even seeing that, again, very familiar story. You've probably heard that before, maybe thought about that. It's a very good picture of what it means and what it looks like when you make Jesus the king of your life. You are going to run counter to the culture so often that you will be persecuted and it will be difficult at different times. And we see that with Mary and Joseph in a very real way here. They've got to get up and go because Herod is seeking to destroy Jesus. Seeking to destroy Jesus because he misunderstands who Jesus is. It's the same thing today. People that want to destroy Christianity, to destroy the proclamation of who Christ is because they misunderstand him and who he is and who his kingship is. And so I want you just to think about that. But there's this picture here with both of them. There's difficulties that come by, by the uh, Magi finding Jesus and there's difficulties for Mary and Joseph being there with Jesus. You see it in both. But all the way through that, there's God leading and guiding them. In the midst of the journey of the Magi, you think about as this passage starts, it says in uh, verse 2, right, how they even showed up. Right? It says, the wise men came from the east and they say, we saw the star when it rose and we came to worship him. Right? I think that's such an awesome picture. These guys their whole life had been studying the stars and all these things. Uh, you think of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And there they are studying the skies and there's something different and they've got to go figure it out. God is there moving and working and leading and guiding them even that. And then they get there, right? And then the, the star takes them right to where Jesus is and he shows them. And so there's God moving and working even in this difficult journey that they have to find Jesus. 
Or then you see with Mary and Joseph and you see with the wise men after they find Jesus. Herod's out to get you. Don't go that way. And so God comes to them in a dream and says, don't do that. Go this way. Same thing with Mary and Joseph. Take the baby Jesus and go to Egypt. And so even in the midst of those things that are swirling around them, God is there to lead and to guide them. I want to be real careful when we say that. That doesn't mean you make Jesus your king. He is the Lord of your life. You put your faith in him. That whenever bad things are happening, God's going to wake you up in a dream and tell you to go this way. That's not true. That doesn't always happen that way. But what is true and what does always happen is he's always there. Even when you can't see it and you can't understand it and you're not exactly sure how this is going to work out, he's always there to lead and to guide you. And the reason is simply this. We talk about misunderstanding of who Jesus is and his kingship, earthly king in this area, and understanding who he really is. He is the king of the universe that holds all things together by the power of his word and there is nothing that comes into your life that he doesn't have. And when you know that king, the thing that starts to happen when bad things happen and they start to go out of order and you're not sure what's going on, he's got it. And there's a big difference between seeing him as just an earthly king, seeing him as a threat with rules and telling you what to do, and seeing him as your savior. The savior that laid his life down for you and has given it to you. There's a big difference. And so when you start to see that, there's a deep and abiding peace and comfort despite circumstances despite what's swirling around you. You know, there's, there's hard times here, and God is showing them and leading them and guiding them, but oftentimes the hard times come, and it's not like that. There's not the side door. You go out over here, and everything's fine, and you slip away. I often am encouraged by reading stories uh, from history, from church history, about Christians who faced uh, horrible persecution, horrible things staring them in the face, and they had a deep confidence and joy that persevered through all that. I was thinking back over uh, just different ones that I've read over the years, and I I I always go back to this one, but I think of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. If you don't know who they are, that's okay. They were two uh, British pastors during the Reformation, 1500s in England. And both of them, as the Protestant Reformation spread to much dismay of many people, to great persecution, they stood up and said, you are saved by faith alone, by Christ alone, by grace alone. And that upset a lot of people and they were called heretics. And so what happened to Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley is they were taken and they were put on a stake in the middle of the square in Oxford, England, and they were burned at the stake. They took them out there and then in the middle. And so the, the thing that I love to read, is, as horrible as that is, in the midst of that, their last quote Uh, Nicholas Ridley says this, the last thing he says is they're about to light them on fire, to burn them alive. He says, O Heavenly Father, I give unto you the most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of you even unto death. I beseech you, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. That happens when you know the king and who he really is. When you see the king for who he is, when you see Jesus as fully God and fully man who's come and laid down his life for you, you have that type of response in that situation. And so you have a deep abiding comfort that comes even in the midst of all the heartaches that go in this life. And so lastly, the last thing here as we end with this is ultimately when we understand Jesus' kingship, 
ultimately it's wonderful. And I think you see that even in this story. When you think about the story of these men traveling uh, all this way to come and to see and to find the Messiah, to find Jesus. And they ask their questions and they travel and they travel and they come and then look at verse 10 and 11. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and they offered gifts and gold and frankincense and myrrh. I want you to think about these men traveling and traveling and traveling and asking these questions and seeking and seeking and they get there and they are overwhelmed with joy. And they come in and they fall down and they worship. They've seen the king. They've found him. Not just an earthly king, but they've seen the king. And they worship and they offer all that they have. Right? We, thought, we said at the beginning, when we misunderstand, Jesus can become radically threatening because of what he might ask of us. When we see the king for who he is, you can't throw your stuff down fast enough. Big difference when you see the king for who he is versus who he's not. And so they rejoice and they're overcome. And so I love this story when you think about it. This long journey. Again, I don't want to over-spiritualize the, the journey of the wise men, but long journey the hard road of finding him and seeking him and getting there and being overjoyed. That is a picture of the Christian life. When you stand before him and you see him as the king, overjoyed. What is to come when he returns and when we stand before him will be far beyond and above anything. Not just the baby in the manger, but the king who rules over all. And so that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Not just the birth and the baby in the manger, but what Jesus came to do and what he will do when he returns. And so seeing him as king is far beyond anything we can imagine. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for these familiar texts, just these, these words that you've persevered, that you've kept for us, that uh, we can read over and over and see afresh. I thank you for the wise men that came so long and so far to seek, to see Jesus. Pray that we would have the same perseverance, the same excitement, the same joy over knowing you as our king. I pray that that would be over us this next few days as we celebrate Christmas, that this would be a reality in our life each and every day, that we'd be overjoyed with who you are and what you've done for us, that we would see you as the king that you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to enter into a time of worship through our giving. What child is